Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. We are continuing our study of the book of Daniel, and today we look at the meaning of Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. Class teacher Doug Brady has been taking us through a very thorough discussion of this ninth chapter of Daniel, even verse by verse, as is the case today. The ninth chapter has the prayer of confession, followed by a very important prophecy explained to Daniel by Gabriel sent from God. The meanings in each of the three verses, 24 to 27, are carefully explained and discussed in this series, and today we're working on verse 26. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We invite you to visit our class and meet with over 130 people who are in the classroom today. If you are interested in a deep study of the Bible, this is the class to consider. Well, Doug is at the podium and ready to begin, so without further wait, let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible class. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. We are studying the book of Daniel. We are in the ninth chapter. We are in what some people consider to be the most important prophecy in all of the Old Testament. Now, some of you say, well, how can that be? Well, we'll talk a little bit about it and the far-ranging effects. You can't understand key doctrinal issues unless you know this prophecy. You cannot understand what the church is supposed to be doing today unless you know this prophecy. You cannot understand what is going to happen in the future unless you know this prophecy. That's why we're going slow and unpacking every single part of it. We've got two more verses to go. Today we're going to be starting in verse 26, the second to last verse of these four. But let's review. You remember, this prophecy is a little complex. There's no question about it. It's not like saying, well, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. You know, that's pretty easy to understand. But if we unpack it slowly, step by step by step, we can understand it. And Jesus intended it to be understood. And I'm going to show you that in a, in a minute or two. But let's look at the steps real quickly that we have considered up to now. But before we get to them, let's pray. Father, we Thank you for the time that we can come in this joyous season and preparing for your birth and the celebration of your son's birth and open such a magnificent prophecy that you've given to us. Help us to come to understand that people like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Zechariah, they couldn't understand what was being said here, but we can. And we can see it because of the gift of hindsight. And so I pray, Father, that you'll help us to be encouraged, to be motivated, 
and to be energized by the words of, of this prophecy. Now, Father, I pray that you will put your arms around our country and that you will try in some way to overlook the grievous sin that's going on here and send your Holy Spirit in such a way that we can have a great awakening again and that you will turn our hearts and our eyes back to you. I know, Father, that that just seems impossible that that could ever happen. And yet, you are the God who specializes in the impossible. Come rescue our nation. Now, Father, help us as we study to understand what it is you have to say to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The steps that we have taken so far. Step number one. This prophecy is only about the Jewish people, Jerusalem, and the temple. We need to remember that. That's very important in understanding this prophecy. Number two, the prophetic timeline set out in Daniel 9 extends for 490 years or 176,400 days. Step number three, the length of a prophetic, judgmental, or Jewish year for God is 360 days. That's what he chose. Step number four, God will accomplish six purposes or six plans during his 490-year prophetic period of time. During this 490 years, there's going to be six purposes or plans in relation to Israel that he's going to accomplish that he spoke about in verse 24 of this passage. Now, step five, there's a countdown of the final 490 years granted to Israel and Jerusalem, and it begins with a decree that was, or a grant that was made by Artaxerxes, king of Persia, 445, pardon me, at uh, March 5th, 444 BC. Now, we've also seen that that period, the first period of 483 years, ended with what day? Now, I want you to think about this for a second. There are other people who have theories about the time period that we talked about last time. But what do we know for certain? Do we, some of us could say, well, Doug, I don't know for certain that that day, Palm Sunday, occurred on March 30th, 33 BC. I don't know that for certain. There's other people say it was other days. What we know from certain is this, that whatever day Artaxerxes made that grant, to whatever day Jesus rode in Jerusalem on the unbroken colt of a donkey that it was 173,880 days. That's what we know for certain. Now, you will notice in the notes that I have tried to correct my mathematical error as far as the fraction I stated. The decimal point was correct. The fraction should be 121 five hundredths. Now, what in the world am I talking about? There, most people, you ask them how many days in a year, they say 365. When you question them a little care, more carefully, they say, no, 365 and a quarter. But that's really wrong. It is 365.242 or 365 and 121 five hundredths. Now, when you're measuring over a long period of time, you say, well, how does that ever have an effect? Let me tell you. There are rules out 
And there are certain leap years where we don't have a leap year, a leap day, uh, uh, February 29th. Now, you may not have lived because it's like 119 years before you have another one. So you may never have lived when that happened. And the rules are rather complex. I looked it up once and it said you have a leap year every year that you can divide by four evenly. Unless you can divide it evenly by 100. Unless you can divide it evenly by 400, then you do have a leap year. So every four years, it's divisible by four, you have a leap year. If it's divisible evenly by 100, you don't have the leap year, unless it's divisible evenly by four. And you see, that's very simple, isn't it? Not complicated at all. And so that's what you have to do to find it. Now, one of the things, both this Sunday and next Sunday, it's going to be very important to understand again this concept of the prince. Jesus was referred to as Messiah the Prince. Why was he referred to as Messiah the Prince? He was referred to because he came to Jerusalem presenting his credentials to be coronated as king of Israel and sit on David's throne. And what did the leaders of the nation do? They rejected him. You look in John 12, verse 37, you'll see that. And that rejection continued and was finalized in what event? Crucifixion. Who were the Romans calling for him to be crucified? The Jewish and the people there, the mob they assembled. And so it was finalized then. Now, that leads us to the next step in unpacking this process, and that's step number seven. There is a stoppage of the clock after year 483 leading to a pause in the prophecy or a gap in the 490 years. What I'm saying here in this, you need to understand because this is very controversial. Well, if you're talking mostly to conservative scholars, it's not controversy at all. But if you include liberal or progressive scholars or just pure pagans, it's going to be very controversial. You remember with the decree of Artaxerxes, it started But Gabriel divided it into two sets. He first had a set of 49 years, which is 77s, and then a a set of 435 years, which was 62 sevens. All right? The second one started immediately after the end of the first one. So he only tells us what starts the first one and what ends the second one. But if you have an end and you're going to count any more time, what do you have to have? A beginning. What's the beginning of this next period? Well, you won't find that out till next Sunday. But the fact is, we want to look at this pause. Let's read together Daniel 9.26. We'll break down a few words, and then we're going to look at this concept of a pause. In verse 26, Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and will have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Now, what is that saying? Well, let's look at a few of the words or the passages first. Number one, the Messiah will be cut off. What does that mean? That is the Hebrew word karat. And karat means to 
in the nephal, which is what this is, to be cut down. You would use it maybe to cut down a tree. That would be an example of this. It means, though, to kill or to end. If there's a life involved, it means to kill. If when you cut down the tree, well, you don't necessarily kill the tree when you cut it down. But if there's a thing, then you're ending it. And that's what this word means. Now, you say, Doug, you look at the lexicon. The question then is, is this word ever used? Do we want to ask, is this word ever used anywhere else in the Bible? No, we don't. Because we don't want to include the New Testament. Why would we not include the New Testament? Because it's a different word. Right. We want to, is the question, is it used anywhere else in the Old Testament? That's what you were thinking, right, Steve? Yes. Now, <laughs> let's turn to Genesis chapter 9, verse 11. This, in Genesis 9, do you remember what event has just occurred? The flood. And now we're at the, after the flood and a promise or a covenant is being made by God. And he says in verse 11, I will establish my covenant with you. You here is plural. And all flesh shall never again be cut off, cut down, whatever you want to say, cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. So what is he saying? He's dividing two things, the earth and humanity on the earth. The earth will never be destroyed. Now, think about that. The earth was destroyed by the flood. What are we talking about? Are we talking about people there? No. We're talking about massive geographical and geotechnic changes in the earth. Massive. In addition to that, I will never kill all the people on the earth again by a flood. That's what he's saying. Cut down. Killing. That's the concept here. If you look, say, in Exodus 4.25, very interesting little passage. We don't have time to get into it. Zipporah, who was the wife of Moses, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. Now, this was a problem that, Mo that Moses had. Moses was not, in this respect, the leader of the family. Zipporah was. Because Zipporah said, you will not cut my son. He said, this is God's law. We have to be obedient. We have to do this. She said, you will not. And what happened here, they are on the way down to Egypt to lead the people out in the greatest exodus that's ever happened. And in effect, God grabs Moses and puts a divine knife at his throat and says, circumcise the boy, or Moses dies. Think God would ever do anything like that? Well, God did something like that. That's why you see Zipporah took a flint, cut off her son's foreskin, and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said, you are indeed a bridegroom to me. Here is this word, cut off, eliminate, remove it. Another use of this word. In the same way, the Messiah was cut off, eliminated, removed. Again, in Psalm 37, 28, For the Lord loves justice, and He does not forsake His godly ones. They are preserved forever, but the descendants of the wicked will be cut off, eliminated, destroyed. Now, that's what's happened, and that's clearly what this word means. Why couldn't they just use kill? Because this is a more final thing. This is something the Jewish people 
at that time would understand and understand exactly what the prophecy means. Daniel had no, no question what it was saying. Now he couldn't believe it. Messiah is going to be killed? Why is that? He had trouble understanding that, but he didn't have understanding, say, underst- a problem understanding this word. Now, then the next word that it has here, this phrase, and have nothing. Now, that's much more difficult to come to understand. And I hate to admit this again, but that's because you're reading the New American Standard. Now, am I telling you not to read the New American Standard? No, I'm not. It is what I read. It's what I teach out of. But this word here is ayan. And technically or basically it means nothing or not. Now, this word is used to mean nothingness and could be used if you're supporting the King James, pardon me, the Numeric Standard Translation, say he was put out of this earth and he had nothing left. I don't like that translation at all. Unfortunately, the translation I like in this one particular instance is in a King James earth. <laughs> and what the second meaning of this phrase is, is the idea of not for himself. Not for himself. And this is so important to understand here. Did Jesus die for himself? No, he died not for himself, but for you and for me. That's exactly what this word means here and in this. Now, the next word I want us to look at is this concept with a flood. It's end with a flood. Now, this here... Uh, understanding this gets to be a problem because it gives the dark side a way to try and get in. This word with a flood is constantly used as an analogy or a metaphor in Hebrew. Anytime there's a military operation where they come in and just wipe you out, says, and, the, and they came with a flood. Here it's talking about a military event, and it's saying... The Romans are just going to wash over them and wipe them out. Now, even to the end, there will be war. Now, this word war is rather simple. It means a war or a battle. But what's important in understanding the meaning here is that it's singular. What does that mean, singular? Why is it singular? Because the next word, desolations is plural. What in the world is this trying to say to us then? What it's saying is there's going to be war that will be, could almost be considered one war. It's just a war that keeps going. Now, this word desolations, I want you to look at the meaning because there's two meanings and they're both important for us to see. It can mean to be desolate, that is destroyed. Something is destroyed. It can also mean to be appalled at what has happened. Now do you see the meaning here? It's these wars are going to call, this war is going to call things to be made desolate. And when you look at it, you're going to be appalled at what happened. Do you remember the statements made by Jesus as he rode in and he came to the zenith in Jerusalem and he started to cry? Do you remember that? Why was he crying? Was there anything he could see there that was causing him to cry? No. 
He was looking forward to 70 AD and seeing what was going to happen because they had just rejected their Messiah. And that's what appalled him. And that's the concept of this word. Now you think back. Throughout history from after this point, has there been war in and around Jerusalem? Constantly. Crusades over Jerusalem. The Muslim, Jewish, uh, Christian conflict constantly on this area. And what happens many times, it's just appalling to what goes on. And that's what this prophecy is about. That's what it's talking about. So, as we go on, I want you to see the final thing in this verse. And that is the passage speaks of a certain people or nationality who will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. This nation group is then going to be of use to us. Now, does this passage tell us what the people or the nation is? Answer, no. But once historically we learn what that people is, we can then determine who the prince is. That's the key. We have to wait. Daniel didn't know, unless God told him off the record, who that people were, what that nation would be. We'll talk about that nation here in just a second that is coming to destroy the, the thing, the, the, the city and the temple. Now, many liberal scholars, progressive scholars, those from the dark side, right now would stand up and say, Brady, there is no statement in here about a pause. There's no stoppage. You've got this stupid picture of a stopwatch. You think you're 60 minutes or something, and you say God pressed it when Artaxerxes issued the decree, and he let it keep running until Palm Sunday, and then he pressed it again to stop it, and now he's waiting for some who knows what to start it again. And there's this long pause. I mean, a pause is one thing, Brady, but you're telling us this pause is 2,000 years. How can that be? Was God really not ready to start it when he, when he first pushed it? That he has to wait 2,000 years now? Well, God doesn't ever wait. God has everything planned out and he knows. One of these days we'll get to a concept called the writing of truth. And you will see that it has all been planned. But liberal scholars say there's no pause. Prophecies don't come with a pause. 490 years have run, and the church needs to move on. This prophecy is over. It's been completed. And now we're here with the church. Israel has been replaced, they say. The church is now Israel. The church is the one that is fulfilling or going to see uh, the fulfillment of God's covenant that used to be to Israel, now to them. You see, they're the wild olive branches uh, that have been grafted into the olive tree. And finally, what you're doing, looking at these kind of prophecies, is a complete waste of time. What you need to be about is bringing in the kingdom. Now, that's what they say. Almost everything that I just said is categorically wrong. It's just categorically wrong. Now, well, let's just say it. Categorically wrong. Who, Dawn, would that come from? Absolutely Satan. 
Now, you know, when we look at things in, the, in our way of looking, we say, well, there's black and there's white and there's gray in between. There ain't no gray for God. No gray. It's either right or it's wrong. And it either comes from God or it comes from Satan. You know, I grew up in a rather conservative home and I would hear this term, communist dupes all the time. What we've really got is satanic dupes. Satan uses human beings to accomplish his purposes. And they're just, dude, they don't know it, but that's what he's doing. Now, I'm going to suggest to you six pieces of evidence that I believe will say there is a pause. There is a stoppage. Six pieces of evidence. When you put them all together, there is a pause. So let's start. Number one. This foundational prophecy speaks of Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple, and them alone. It does not speak of the church. Consider what, what Paul, who was an ardent Jew for a large part of his life, who would have said what he's saying here in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, is a bunch of bull. He would have said that earlier in his life until he met the Messiah on the road to Damascus, and until he spent three years with him down in Mount Horeb, he said this, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. What is a mystery? Something God hadn't revealed until now. So that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A partial hardening. What does that mean? Part of Israel's been hardened, part of not. I mean, when the church started on Pentecost and 3,000 people accepted Jesus as Savior, what nationality was the church? Maybe 99% Jewish? 100% Jewish. Now, when Peter and John healed that uh, lame man and brought him into the temple and they started praising God and he started preaching and 5,000 more people came to know the Lord, what percentage was Jewish? 100%. There's a partial hardening. But what does he say about this hardening? Will it last forever? Well, what does he say? Until the fullness of the Gentiles, times the Gentiles has come. That's a pause. That's a break in the action. Do you see that? There's going to be this hardening, and then it's going to be over. It's a pause. Evidence, piece of evidence number one. Piece of evidence number two. The 490 years cannot end until the six events outlined in 924 have been completed. What are those? We're going to look at them, not as they're said in the Scripture, but what we determine them to mean. Number one to reverse the nation of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. Have we seen that yet? Well, then the prophecy can't be through, can it? To eliminate sin in the people of Israel from the practice on a daily basis or from being practiced on a daily basis. Has the nation of Israel stopped sinning on a daily basis? No. Number three, to remove the old sin nature from the hearts of God's people. And when I say God's people, I mean the Jews. Have we seen that yet? No. Number four, to bring in or establish the kingdom of God's everlasting righteousness. Have we seen the millennial kingdom yet? Now, some people say we're living in the kingdom. If this is the kingdom, I don't want any part of it. But we are not obviously living in the kingdom. We haven't seen that yet. 
Number five, the fulfillment of all the prophecies, all the covenants, all the promises made to Israel. Has that been fulfilled yet? No, in fact, just take one. Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Is he doing that? No. In fact, there's a God of this world right now. And it is not Jesus. It's Satan. You can say, who gave him this world? And the answer is, your father, Adam. Number six, to anoint the most holy place, that is the millennial kingdom's temple. Have, do we even have a temple? Do you want to be involved in the next temple? No, but there'll be a millennial kingdom temple and the sanctuary will be anointed by the very presence of the Shekinah glory in that temple. Those things haven't happened. So the 490 years can't be finished. There's got to be a pause. Let's look at, again at Romans 11. And look what it says about these things. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, a deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Do you see? Those things have to be fulfilled before the 490 years is ended. That's why there is a pause. Number three, the third piece of evidence I want you to see. There are three events or activities spoken of in Daniel 9.26, which must take place before the clock is allowed to recommence. You see, the, the clock stopped with Palm Sunday. It's got to start again, but there's some events that have to occur, some accomplishments that have to be made. Number one, the Messiah had to be cut off. The Messiah had to be sacrificed. That's number one in those events. Number two, the city and the sanctuary have to be destroyed. Now, this is interesting. When Daniel made this prophecy... Was there a viable city? Was there a sanctuary or a temple? No. In fact, every stone had been torn down. Now, on Palm Sunday, when the first 483 years stopped, was there a city? Was there a sanctuary? Now, you have to have a city and a sanctuary before the city and sanctuary can be destroyed. Now it's been destroyed. But when was it destroyed? 70 A.D., there was a guy, his name is Titus Flavius Vespasianus, and he led multiple Roman legions. A full-strength Roman legion is 70 or 7,000 legionnaires. They were the most proficient fighting force there was in ancient history. Their weaponry was the most superior of all. Their tactics were... Anyway, they came... They surrounded Jerusalem. They built up a wall or a barricade around Jerusalem. You say, if they're trying to get in, why'd they build a wall? So nobody could get out. They're going to kill every single one they could. 1.1 million Jews died in 70 AD, according to Flavius Josephus, one of the most accurate historians we have for this period of time. In fact, he's amazingly accurate. I think somebody was riding through him, not an inspiration but was leading him in the right direction in the things that he wrote. 
And so you begin to see that this came in. The siege lasted about five months, and at its conclusion, the rebuilt city and the temple were completely destroyed. Completely destroyed. Now, we have a very important question to ask about him. What is his nationality? Roman. The people who were with him, the legionnaires, what were they? Roman. Now go back to the verse. Then after the Messiah be cut off, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy. So we now have an answer to this portion of the prophecy. Who are the people? Romans. So the prince that is to come will be what? Roman. Now, I've been thinking about this because some I've heard things and people tried to persuade me. Ah, oh, this prince that we're going to talk about in verse 27, he could be the Mahdi. He could be Muslim. No. Some is, oh, he could be Jewish. No. He could be Arabic. No. I don't think so. What does it say? The people of the prince who is to come. The prince is Roman. Now, I don't know this one part. If you have a Roman male and a female of a different nationality, and they have a son, what will that son be? Will it be Roman? Then he could have a Jewish mother. But if the nationality is determined by the father, different nationalities have different rules on this. And I don't know. You had a question, Julie. You see that the Antichrist comes from that revived Roman Empire, which you have to look at the whole Roman Empire at that time, and it's bigger than what people think. It's not just Europe. I mean, it, it can be bigger. Well, it will have ten nations, ten groups. And so it's not going to be more than ten. And uh, it's still, it's not saying, it's saying the people. Now, can we know for certain? what exactly is going to be this 10-nation confederacy that's going to be called the revived Roman Empire? He says the people. That's the nationality. That's what that means. Just like if you said the people of, it, of Israel, it means Jewish people. Not areas they live, but Jewish, the, the nationality. So I tend to think that. If somebody can convince me of the opposite, I will listen to them. Now, so we have first event, the Messiah will be cut off. It's got to happen during this pause. Second event, the destruction of Israel. That's the, the second thing. Third, wars and desolations are to be determined. War after, it's just almost a continuous war in God's mind. When they're not actually fighting, they're preparing for the next fight. That's the way it seems to be. And that's what's the third event. That is going on during this pause. So in my mind, that is the third piece of evidence that there is a pause. Now, if we want to go to the most reputable source of all to try and find out whether there's going to be a pause, who should we go to? Jesus himself, that's an excellent idea. Well, let's see. Where could, you had a question? Yeah. Uh, the gap, if you, go, if you go back, is, is there a gap between when the Messiah is cut off? Is there a gap after he's cut off? It continue, the gap continues. He's one of the events in the gap. Does the gap begin when the Messiah is cut off? No. 
The gap begins at Palm Sunday, the end of the 483 years. Okay, so it begins with, so, so if, so. If the rejection of the Messiah. But if there's a gap, it begins there, then what happens to Jerusalem actually happens <coughs> during, at the end of the Great Tribulation. No, it happens during this gap. It happened in 70 AD. Just like, you see, here's, here's the thing. You have a gap that starts at Palm Sunday with the rejection of the Messiah. Did you, the next event during this gap or the first event that it speaks of in the prophecy of this gap is the cut off of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah. That's the first event. The second event is going to be the destruction of the city and the sanctuary. The third event is going to be this series of war that's going to carry on and the desolations that that war will cause. But it says even, even to the end, it says even to the end. Yes, the end of the gap. Which is the great tribulation. No, the tribulation, when it starts the seven years, that's the end of the gap and the start of the final week. Okay, but everything happens at the end of the seventieth week. Everything that the prophecy being fulfilled as far as those six things, but no, the prophecy of the Messiah being cut off occurred during the gap. The prophecy of the city and the sanctuary being destroyed occurred during the gap. At the beginning, he's cut off at the beginning of the gap. Yes, he is. That was the first event. Okay. But see, you have you have another destruction of Jerusalem that happens in the Great Tribulation. Yes. But that's during the final week. Right. But everything happens, everything supposedly happens at the very end. It has to happen at the very end. No. It doesn't have to happen. During the pause, there's, or the gap, there's certain things that are going to happen. I mean, I, I agree that other things can happen, but from the way it's written, when he says, even to the very end... The end of what? I think the gap, that's the wars and the desolations that are going to happen even to the very end. Those are the things, not these other singular events. But let's go on and see what Jesus has to say. That's evidence number four. When delivering the Olivet Discourse, he provides us with evidence that he believes in a gap. Jesus believes there's a gap. In Matthew 24, verses 1 through 4, we have to, to read this to understand the context. Jesus came out of the temple. Now, what does he know about that temple? It's going to be destroyed in about 40 years, there may be 37 years, depending on what date you think it is. Jesus came out of the temple and was going away with his disciples. When his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, and he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, that's what he says. Not one stone will be left upon another that will not be torn down. Did that happen 70 AD? It did. Now, here's the question. Why didn't they question him right then? They knew how sensitive what he just said was. They didn't want anybody to hear them questioning about him. So they wait till they get up to the Mount Olives. And he said this. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when these things will happen. When will be the sign of your coming and the end of, a, of the age? I like to translate this, the end of time. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. And now he's going to tell us about it. Number one, 
The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all of the nations. And then the end will come. What? The end of what? In the context, the end of time. Now, it's important. The gospel of the kingdom. Do we preach the gospel of the kingdom today? No. What is the gospel of the kingdom? You need to turn to God because the kingdom is coming. The kingdom is not coming next. Now, did Jesus ever preach the gospel of the kingdom? Well, yes, he did. Why? Because if they accepted him as the Messiah, the kingdom would be next. But they rejected him. Now he's saying that gospel will be preached again. Who would have been preaching the gospel of the kingdom during Jesus' lifetime? And Jewish people. In the final seven years, who's going to be preaching the gospel of the kingdom? The 144,000. And the two witnesses. And angels. And those who are their converts. Although the converts will die very quickly. If you, in the tribulation period, if you convert, you're dead. We, we could get into more on that, but I'm not going to because we need, I need you to understand. Now, we come to verse 14 that Jesus said, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then it will come. Therefore, now he, he's, this is the Olivet Discourse. It's Jewish in orientation. He's talking about Jewish things. And what is he saying to the Jews? Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, that'll be in verse 27, standing in the holy place, then those who are in Jerusalem must flee to the mountains. And he's telling everybody, run. Now, what is interesting here in this, in what Jesus is saying, when you see what? The abomination of desolation. Where will that occur? In the temple. Now, was there a temple when he was saying this? Yes. When Jesus was saying this. Right. Is there a temple now? No, it was destroyed. So, but this is in the future. At the end of time, in the final seven years during this tribulation, Jacob's trouble. There will be a temple. Jesus saw that there would be a temple. He knew there would be a temple. The Jewish people would build it, they thought, for him. And it would be turned over to the Antichrist. But I want you to notice something here. It's a little statement. It's a parenthetical statement, at least the way it's translated in the New American Standard. Let the reader understand. Now, what is he referring back to? Daniel. Does that mean that we can understand this prophecy? Yes. Now, does that mean that you don't have maybe some work to do to be able to get to the understanding? Yeah. When he gave Israel the promised land, did they just march in and settle down and everything was fine? Or did they have to fight for it? They had to fight for it. You're going to have to work at it to get this, but you can't understand it. That's what he's saying. And I want you to understand it. He goes on, then in two other places I want you to see. He says, for then, that is, when the um, abomination of desolation occurs, there will be a great tribulation. That's the second half of, of the of the tribulation period. A great tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have ever been saved or would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And finally, he says, but immediately after the tribulation in those days, 
He's continuing on now as to that tribulation. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What is he talking about? The second advent, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Describes it also in Revelation chapter 19. And you will see this person sitting on a great white horse in the, in the sky. And the heavens will be unrolled, it says. And there you will see him. And the names, a name written on him you won't be able to understand. And then he'll have a number of people riding with him. Vera, will you be on a horse behind him? I will too. And Julie won't even be scared of horses anymore. And she'll be able to ride. And all of us will be there. He's coming back. We're coming with him at that time. That's the end of the 490 years. That's the end of the tribulation. And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus believed there was a gap. Now, number five. The events described in Daniel 9.27 have never occurred as of yet. Now we're going to look at this. I'm not going to look at it very closely because we're going to look at it closely next week. But I want you to see it says he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he'll put a stop to the sacrifice and the grain offering. And the ring of uh, abominations will come, etc., etc. Now... Let me just ask you this part. Have we seen a situation where someone takes over the temple, doesn't destroy it, but stops the sacrificial system from going on and puts something in its place? We haven't seen that yet. That will occur. And in fact, if you look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you'll see in the middle of that tribulation period, he will do exactly that. Now, one last proof that I, I want you to see. I can't believe they would really argue this, but liberal and progressive scholars would say, you're trying to put a, da a gap in this prophecy. There's no gaps in any other prophecies. So why would there be a gap here? Prophecies don't come with gaps. I say, oh yeah? Oh yeah? I, we could be here probably through the end of the second service, going through all of them if I picked all of them, but I picked these to show you. Let's start with Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end in the increase of his government or of peace, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Was a child given? Was a son born to the Jewish people? When did that occur? Sometime maybe 3 to 5 BC. Was the government on his shoulders? Was he sitting on the throne of David? Well, that means there's a gap, right? If that's going to be fulfilled. And if there's a gap, how long would that gap be? Over 2,000 years. Oh, the same period in Daniel, huh? Yeah, there's a gap there. Well, what about, what about this? In Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, it says, The Spirit of the Lord of God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me 
to bring the good news to the afflicted, and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captains and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort those who mourn. Now, I want you to pay particular attention here to this last part. And the day of vengeance of our God, to proclaim that and to comfort all who mourn. This prophecy is a messianic prophecy. It's about Jesus. How do I know that? Jesus told me. He did, yeah. Look right here in Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 3. Then he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, it didn't have 61, it didn't have a chapter 61 because they didn't have chapter divisions then. But he turned in this scroll to what we know as chapter 61. And he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind and to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he stops in the middle of one of our verses. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What's he saying? I am this person, the anointed one. I am the Messiah and I have come for all these things. But the day of vengeance? Nope. Not yet. There's a pause. When he shows up on that white horse with all of us behind him, we'll be coming for the day of vengeance? Absolutely. And all the nations will mourn because they have rejected the Son of God. Go to Daniel chapter 2, verse 40, 41. And there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And then you saw the feet and toes, uh, partly of iron and partly of clay, potter's clay, and partly of iron, it will be divided, it will be a divided kingdom, and it will have in it the toughness of iron, as much as so the iron mixed with common clay. Did that kingdom come about immediately after the end of the Roman Empire? No, there was a pause. Do you see there are pauses in prophecy all the time? This pause here is going to be over 2,000 years. Mark. But before you get to the next point, there's, a, there's something that confused me. Uh, Daniel 27, depends on which uh, uh, version of Scripture you read, says, one says, like I'm looking at the King James, he shall confirm the covenant, and then the other one says he will make a covenant. Well, there's a drastic difference. Do you have an opinion on that? Yes, there is a drastic difference there, and that's one of the problems with relying on the King James Version. It is to make or create a covenant not to confirm it. That's what the word means in the, in the Hebrew. Thanks for that question. That makes me feel better the other admissions I had to make earlier. It's already in place. And then he's just confirming it. Now, final point I want to make. Who or what fills up this pause? Who or what fills up this pause? This is what fills up. Let's look at this pause. This is what we had. This is the actual timeline. 49 years. Immediately after that, the 433. And then there's an undetermined pause. Undetermined meaning we don't know the length of it. We are not told. See, we are told 
The first, the first link, 483 years. We know that's exactly. We are told the last part, it's going to be seven years. We know it's not going to be seven years and five days. It's seven years. But we don't know how long the pause will last. That's intentional. But let's go on. Because if the church is not to take Israel's place, which it, it is not, then what's it supposed to be doing? What is it supposed to be doing? Look at this a second, because this shows you so that there can be no question in your mind. The decree to restore on March 5th, 69 weeks happen. Messiah the Prince comes and then is rejected. And then he is cut off. We're in the church age. Now, the coming Prince will make that covenant. When that happens, the pause is over and the clock's running again. That stopwatch has been punched again and it'll start running for the final week. Now, look at this again. Church's purpose. The church, as we know it, has three purposes. The first two are spelled out in Ephesians. The second one in Matthew chapter 28. Number one, to glorify God. That's the number one purpose of the church. Number two is to edify, that is to build up and equip the saints. Number three, to fulfill the Great Commission. Now, what is the key point? We're going to start with number three and work backwards. What is the key point of fulfilling the Great Commission? Make disciples. Make disciples. What does that mean? I'm going to try and break these things down for you so that they're the easiest to understand. Making disciples involves three things. Winning, that is leading someone to the Lord. Building, building them up for what purpose? Number three, sending them out to make disciples. It is all about spiritual reproduction. That's the Great Commission. Now, I'm going to argue to you today that all of these are the same thing. Number two, to edify, that is to build up and equip the saints. What are we supposed to be about in the church? Building up our people, equipping them, giving them the skills to do what? To go out and make disciples. You bring those disciples back in. Are those people who you win back in? They are then disciples that is built up, edified. And then what do we do with them? Send them back out. It's all about fulfilling the Great Commission. Number one, glorifying God. Does God need me to glorify Him? Absolutely not. His glory exists whether I say it or not, whether I praise it or not. But what does He want here? The easiest way, I think, to understand glorifying God, if you break it down from the human being's perspective in the church, is glorifying God means to make God attractive to others. For what purpose? So they'll receive Jesus as their Savior. All of this is about spiritual reproduction. That's what the church is to be about. Up to now, God has never had an entity to brings about spiritual reproduction like it has the church. Where in the history of the world has more people been saved than during the church age? That's why I call it the gap called grace. Where has that happened? It hasn't happened. Now, that may change come the final seven years and 144,000 apostle Pauls be unleashed on the world along with the two witnesses. But up to now, nothing. We are supposed to be a part of that. If so, you ought to ask yourself several questions. 
Number one, do I have a good gospel presentation memorized? Do I know how to share the gospel? If I was called upon to do it, do I have it down? Do I have the verses memorized? Do some of you say, well, listen, you know, I, I, I carry with me in my purse or my wallet or this, a little track that I can use. But when you have a track, you need to show it to them where they can see it. You need to be able to say it from memory as you lead them through it. You need to have it. It's a skill you need to have as a Christian warrior. Who's been called to be a Christian warrior? Is there anybody in here who's not been called to be a Christian warrior? Well, unless you're not a believer. Now, you need to, number one, have preparation, develop those skills, that, that, that ability to share the gospel. Does it make any difference in your gospel presentation whether you have practiced it? Oh, absolutely it does. And you need to practice it and be given opportunities. Would there be an opportunity on December 18th? Oh, there would, wouldn't there? Do you know anybody other than homeless people who are more hungry to hear the gospel? Do you, Les? Do you find them more hungry than anybody else? They know their needs, don't they? Yes, they do. Some of us, we don't really feel like we have too many needs. Unbelievers like that don't feel like they have too many. But people who have needs, they have needs. Number two, is it ever valuable to be able to have someone who's good at something show you how they do it. Les, if, if a guy was to ask you, would you take me with you sometime when you go soul winning, would you do that? Susan, if a, a lady was to ask you, when you go witnessing sometime, would you take me with you? Would you do that? Absolutely they would. And there's others in this class who would. And who would take you and show you how to do it. They'll help you practice. They'll help you learn. And then, you know... You need to know how to do this. And it's going to become more and more important as the days grow short and evil prevails and you're going to be asked to stand up for righteousness and the most important part of righteousness is sharing the good news of Jesus' love and forgiveness. That's what the church is to be about. That's what the gap is for. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend studying your word today. I'm sorry that we went so long, but Father, help us to understand the importance of this prophecy, and especially the part of it that comes next week. But help us to also understand that we're a part of the church, and the church has been given orders. And in the same way you said that you came to seek and to save the lost, you told us, as the Father has sent you, that you're sending us. Help us to understand the instructions that you've given us. Help us to work at becoming good Christian warriors, skillful in understanding your word and sharing your gospel. I pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.